Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and it's my pleasure to welcome Matthew Raskin to the program. He is a former New York Fed economist who spent 15 years at the U.S. Central Bank, including one and a half years at the Federal Reserve Board here in Washington. His last two roles at the New York Fed were senior policy advisor in the Markets Group and director of foreign exchange and global markets. He is now head of rate strategy at Deutsche Bank. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Matt. Thanks for having me, Pedro. It's great to be here. Let's start with Fed Chair Powell's remarks from last week at the Economic Club. It strikes me that he was fairly dovish overall, even though markets took mixed signals from him. He seemed very pleased with inflation developments and fairly pleased with developments on the employment side. And it just strikes me that the bar for additional rate hikes is increasingly high as even standout hawks like Chris Waller and Loretta Mester are now coming into that camp. What is your view of what Chair Powell said and what it signals for the path of rates? I took you know, Chair Powell's comments last week as, as overall in line with the sort of message that he and others have been delivering, that the committee can sort of proceed carefully from here. That was kind of the phrase of the day, even before the, the rise in long-term interest rates accelerated after the, the September meeting. You know, I think they're certainly going to keep the target rate unchanged at their meeting next week. And then I think the data will be what determines you know, where, where they go, both in terms of what we see, I think especially on inflation, but, but also in terms of growth and the labor market. And importantly, I think whether the rise in long-term interest rates that we've seen over recent months and the tightening in broader financial conditions, whether that persists. I think the chances are good that they're done, but I do put decent odds on further hikes. I think I'm probably broadly aligned with what we see in market pricing now, which has something like a 40% you know, probability of a, another 25 basis point hike. I do think where I differ a little bit in terms of what I hear in the discussion around the prospect for further hikes is that discussion to me seems quite narrowly centered on whether the Fed's done enough or they have another 25 basis points to go. I think that you know, it was understandably informed by the SCP dot plot, which had the committee split between those two outcomes, at least in terms of their modal projections. But that seems too narrow to me. I think if the committee pauses next week, as I expect, um, and the data unfolds in a way that, that makes it look like they've got more tightening to do, you know, in December or, or later, I think it's unlikely, at least in my view, that that's just another 25 basis points. I mean, that's a scenario where the committee will have been on hold for nearly six months, hiked once in the last seven months. And I think it's you know likely that it will either look at that point like they, they've done enough or maybe even too much, or that they've got a, a decent amount of further tightening to do. In other words, I think exactly 25 basis points against that backdrop just seems overly sort of fine-tuned to, to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, and so how high would you expect, I mean, how much further would they need to go in that sort of uh, more adverse scenario, if you want to call it that? I mean, so, so very difficult to say. The, the conversation will probably center on whether they've got, you know, 50 basis points or more to go. It probably opens up 6% as, a, as kind of the next logical potential terminal rate for the cycle. And do you think December is too early for that discussion? Because it seems to me like they might, given this high bar that they have, given that it might take a reacceleration of inflation and or growth, don't you think it might require until kind of Q1? for them to really have that sense that they have not done enough? You know, I think the strength that we've seen in the, in the recent data, the employment data, the spending data, the CPI report, alongside maybe, you know, some 
pairing back of the the, the, the rise in long term rates and tightening in conditions that we've seen make December perfectly plausible for you know the next rate hike. Okay. Well, you are head of rate strategy, so let's dive into the rate story since it is the foremost story on the minds of market participants. What do you see as the causes of the recent spike in long-term rates, and uh, what are its implications for Fed policy? So it's it's the question everyone's focused on now. In my view, we've seen some reassessment of the Fed policy path, just given the strength in data, and, and that's led to a pricing out of some cuts next year and, and in 2025. But the most pronounced moves have been in longer term rates and, and far forward rates, things like the five-year, five-year rate. And that is not really about expectations for the near-term path of policy, but I think it, it reflects, you know, either expectations for where rates settle sort of over the longer run, you know, our star neutral and for term premia. You know, I think it's plausible that that we've seen some shift up in views around long run neutral that, you know, would make sense just given the resilience we've seen in the data as the Fed's hiked more than more than five percentage points. You know, but I think the bigger driver of the recent moves has been a repricing in, in term premium, in particular in real term premium. So been pretty notable, I think, that break-even inflation rates have been pretty steady throughout the the big repricing. You know, so what's driven term premium higher? Uh, I, I think it's hard to know. As as Powell said in his comments last week, we should we should stay humble about this. Um, but to me, at least, the story sort of starts with what looked like just very very low levels of term premium earlier this year. You know, relative to longer run history and relative to fundamentals like uncertainty around inflation, the correlation between bonds and risk assets, and the outlook for supply. You know, and then I think we had a few developments in recent months that kind of put a spotlight on the, on the supply outlook um, against that backdrop of, of, again, very low term premium. We had focus on um, the deficit, which is on track to, to approach 7% of GDP this year with, with the unemployment rate below 4%. You know, that's a, a huge historical outlier you know, we had the Treasury refunding in uh, in late July, early August that that pointed to higher financing need for this quarter and an earlier increase in in the size of coupon auctions than people were anticipating. We had Chair Powell at the July press conference talk about the prospects that QT could carry on alongside um, interest rate cuts if those cuts come in a soft landing. You know, more QT means more duration that needs to be absorbed uh, by private portfolios. So I think you had all of that. Sort of coming together um, against a backdrop where there's lots of questions about where the demand for that paper will come from. The Fed is doing QT, not QE. I think demand from commercial banks and foreign reserve managers is likely to be subdued. And so I think that means a lot of the supply is going to have to be absorbed by domestic buyers. And so there's just naturally, I think, a lot of questions about what the clearing price for that will be. So again, I think you had this constellation of, of factors putting this focus on the supply-demand balance against a backdrop of what still looked like puzzlingly low term premium that were kind of re- ready to, to price higher at some point. And then I think the dynamic kind of feeds on itself. I think we've gotten to a point where we're a little bit unanchored and people are kind of searching about for what are the right levels, you know, both around long-run neutral, around term premium, around these factors that, that really govern where far forward interest rates go. I do think there's, you know, there's certainly indications that many investors find this level of yields attractive. If we get some stability um, here, no one wants to, to catch the, the proverbial falling knife. But if we get some stability at these levels, I do think there's, there's demand to come in here. And I think we saw, you know, some high profile quotes sort of around that yesterday. Do you have any sense as to how high rates might go? And 
does the political chaos that we're seeing in Washington, as exemplified by the the inability to select the Speaker of the House, does, it, does that make all the problems that you mentioned on the supply side and on the debt management side, does that just make them appear less solvable in the long run? Yeah. So on the first question, how high can yields go? I mean, I, they can certainly move up in, in the near term, but in, in my forecast, I have, have yields ending this year lower. And the main dynamic driving that is is a forecast of a, a mild recession that leads the Fed to cut more aggressively in the second half of next year than the market's currently pricing. You know, that would tend to push yields lower um, across the curve. I mean, offsetting that to, to some extent in and our forecast is a view that our star is higher than I think the market's currently pricing and that the rise in term premium has a bit further to go. But, but you know, our baseline outlook is that the 10-year ends this year around 4.5%, so a bit below current levels. But, but we also put out a piece last week that looked at some alternative forecast scenarios with, you know, some, some reasonable sort of upside assumptions around long-run neutral, around term premium. And a, a path for the for the policy rate over the cycle that looks more in line with what the SEP has than the sort of mild recession scenario I described. And in that scenario, I think the ten-year yield can get up to five and a half percent. And you know, on your question about the, the the dysfunction in in DC, you know, I think the you know in the near term, you know, the, I think the main question is is whether we get a a shutdown and you know what near-term path for fiscal policy results from you know negotiations to avoid or resolve a shutdown. The tighter fiscal policy we get as a result of that, the, the less restrictive the, the Fed would would need to be than otherwise. But I think as we look out over the longer horizon, yes, there's a sense that there's no real constituency, you know, on either side in DC for meaningful fiscal restraint. Chair Powell talked about us being on an unsustainable path last week. And it's just difficult to see heading into an election next year where maybe the composition of deficits look very different under the, the different potential outcomes. It's, it's not clear that we're going to have a big debate about the need to get ourselves onto a more sustainable fiscal trajectory. So I do think that feeds into this in an important way. Fed officials, including Chair Powell in that Q&A that we watched, They've argued that higher rates are doing some of their work for them. What do you make of that argument? I find it slightly circular in the sense that the spike in yields was definitely reinforced or accelerated by the SEP showing the Fed pricing in fewer cuts for next year. So isn't that like the market reacting to the Fed and then the Fed reacting to the market? I do think it's a valid argument, but as as your question suggests, it's it's not completely straightforward and it matters a lot why long-term interest rates are are rising. You know, as I alluded to a, a moment ago, you know, I, I think some of the, the recent move in yields has been reflecting shifting views about, you know, the Fed policy path and, and a pricing out of cuts next year and, and in 25. But I think that's only a small part of it. And I think you can see that in, in the fact that, you know, the increases in the two-year yield are, are notable, but, you know, we've seen much more pronounced moves at the longer end of the curve. And again, in far forward rates, things like five-year, five-year, you know, this is the bear steepening that everyone's been talking about. And as I said, in theory, you know, moves in those far forward rates really shouldn't reflect expectations for what the Fed's going to be doing over the next couple of years, but instead, you know, expectations for, for where, you know, short-term rates settle in over, over the longer run and, and term premia. So I do think the increase in, in longer-term interest rates represents a, a tightening in financial conditions. You know, monetary policy works through impacting broader financial conditions. And so the rise may be doing some of the work for the Fed. But I do still think there are implications for Fed policy that depend on what's driving 
those moves in forward rates, as, as I think you've heard from some Fed policymakers over the past couple of weeks. And in particular, you know, to the extent that those increases reflect an exogenous rise in term premia, that may call for less Fed policy hiking than would otherwise be necessary. You know, if though the moves at the long end have, have been driven by improving economic prospects and, and a corresponding shift up in in views of long-run neutral, I mean, that might actually call for more rate hikes just to preserve the same degree of policy restraint relative to that higher neutral level of interest rates that you had in, in place before. So, you know, you have to make some judgment about what, what's moving rates around, and, and it does have potentially important implications for how Fed policy might respond. Now, as you've made clear, as soon as we get to the peak rate, whether it's here or whether it's 50 or 75 basis points higher, the debate is immediately going to shift and already has in a sense toward how long and what higher for longer actually means. So I want to know what the term means to you and how the Fed is likely to communicate that to markets. There's a few things here. I mean, I think for for Fed policy, it means at some point the relevant dimension for policy will transition from how high rates need to go to be sufficiently restrictive to, to how long they need to stay there. You know, maybe we'll talk more about it. I do think that's a challenging sort of dimension for the Fed to operate on, particularly if we get upside inflation shocks. I think that could be tricky. And I think that's a scenario where you probably have to respond with action rather than just saying, okay, well, now we're going to hold at this high level for, for longer than we previously thought. You know, in terms of what the, the system can support, it's very difficult to say. I think many would have thought we couldn't support 5% rates for you know as long as we have, but the economy looks very resilient. I think that does partly reflect the fact that the, the neutral level of, of short-term rates is higher than, than we'd come to believe. Certainly short-term R-star, I think, is, is higher, but I also think long-run R-star is. But I also think you know, that, that resilience partly reflects the fact that it takes time for policy tightening to work its way through the, through the system. And I think, for me, a, a pretty interesting part of that story is that I think the, the the massive joint you know monetary fiscal stimulus we had during COVID has kind of insulated the economy in some ways from the tightening that that's happened since. And what I mean by that is you know we had a massive fiscal transfer that that resulted in excess household savings. We've all been talking about how much of that remains and when it will be drawn down. But that I think has you know insulated the consumer to an extent from from higher rates. Households were also able to lock in historically low 30-year fixed rate mortgage rates. Companies who had access to the bond market were able to do the same. And so I think that has made our sort of market-based financial system and economy more resilient to the rise in rates than it would otherwise be. And it just takes time for those things to filter through. But I do think it's happening. I mean, if you look at household borrowing rates, borrowing rates faced by outside of mortgages, borrowing rates faced by small businesses. I mean, those are at very elevated levels. So I do think over time, you know, the tightening the Fed's done is is going to gain further traction on the real economy. You mentioned that you expect the Fed to cut rates more quickly than the market is pricing in. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you see as the likely justification for the rate cuts? Will it be the result of worsening economic activity or just an attempt to adjust the nominal rate lower as inflation falls, as some officials have suggested they might do? For me, the main condition to, to rate cuts will be that, that you know, the, the Fed judges that were on a clear, convincing, sustained trajectory towards their, their 2% objective. I mean, certainly labor market conditions will, will factor in. The higher the unemployment rate goes, 
you know, the more there is a trade-off between their two dual mandate objectives. In our house economic forecast, we have the unemployment rate moving up to a bit above 4.5% by the middle of next year. And I think if you get that alongside a move lower in inflation that's sort of broadly in line with the, what the market's currently pricing, I think that's a scenario where the Fed is cutting in the second half of next year and cutting more aggressively than the market is pricing. And just for some perspective on that, if you look at the Fed's policy rules, so these are rules that they consult in their policy setting process. They certainly don't follow them mechanically, but these are things like the Taylor 93 rule or the balanced approaches rule. You know, you can see these in the in the monetary policy report that the Fed puts out. Those rules, you know, even if you Im- embed some sort of gradual sort of inertia in policy adjustment, those rules would generally call for a much, much more aggressive pace of cuts in the second half of next year than the market is pricing if you get the macroeconomic forecast that I just described, where you have the unemployment rate moving up above four and a half percent and inflation, you know, seemingly on a clear and convincing move down towards two percent. I mean, maybe just to quickly step back from that particular forecast, I think the main point for me in this though is that given the experience of the last couple of years, I think the Fed is going to be slower in shifting to cuts. Um, than otherwise. And that's, you know, slower to shifting to cuts that are because of a recession or a material slowdown in growth that leads them to, to actively ease the stance of policy or, you know, cuts that come in a sort of soft landing scenario that are designed to keep the real Fed funds rate from, from moving higher. So where do you expect to see Fed funds at year end in 24? Our forecast builds in, I think, 175 basis points of cuts in the second half of next year. Okay. It's pretty pretty um, so, pretty substantial. Yeah, substantially lower than than the market is pricing. Again, for some perspective on that, I mean, it's predicated on this view that we get a mild recession that brings unemployment up to four and a half percent. It would be, you know, broadly in line, in fact, a, a bit less than the the rules the Fed uh, you know looks to would would prescribe. And it certainly would be a very mild cutting cycle, you know, relative to history. If you look back at historical Fed cutting cycles, those have tended to, to involve, you know, um, much more substantial cuts to the funds rate than, than, than we have built into our forecast. But yes, it certainly is more than the market's currently pricing. Is it also predicated on them being done now as opposed to the scenario outlined where they might have to go further? Yes. So that's that's kind of a baseline outlook that is aligned with this view that the Fed is likely done hiking, that we start to see more evidence of labor market loosening. That means the Fed is, is done hiking and, and then you know shifts to cuts in the second half of next year. As I said earlier on, you know, there's a there's certainly a reasonable probability that they've got to do more. And I think that probably does push the timeline for rate cuts out, certainly relative to what I've just described. So how are you and your colleagues looking at the path of inflation? Like what assumptions are you making? Do you think developments, to quote Chair Powell, have been, quote, very favorable? Are we on a sustainable path to lower rates or are there still significant upside risks? So I I would say developments have both been very favorable and there are significant upside risks. I mean, just over the near term, I do think there's some potential accelerants that could bring inflation in above consensus forecasts. You know, we get a, a reset on CPI health insurance inflation next month. Um, that that has been a drag. We the BLS has a new methodology around that, but 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 I think we still expect some uplift coming from that. Probably some strength in used autos, just 
given the increases in wholesale auto prices, we've got the UAW strike as a potential factor boosting near-term inflation. You know, the September CPI report showed more elevated rent inflation than, than I'd been expecting. And it's possible that there's just a longer sort of lag, that it takes longer for the lower sort of new rental prices to, to feed through into measured inflation. There was also some strength in, in this last prints in, in core services ex shelter. So, I, you know, I, I do think there are good reasons that inflation come in, you know, could come in a bit higher um, over the coming months. And, and, and in fact, I think that would be consistent with the, the SEP inflation projection. So the median um, projection for, for core PC inflation at the end of this year, Q4 over Q4 is, is 3.7%. We would actually need to have inflation move up a bit over the, over the remainder of the year for that, for that to be realized. But yeah, we've seen some very favorable. I mean, you know, inflation has come down a lot, and so you know, I, I think it's important to, to to put all of those upside risks I just mentioned in that in that context. You know, as I as I zoom out, headline inflation, core inflation, it's still too high for the the Fed. Wage growth is still too high for the Fed. They need to bring those down, and I think that will require some further rebalancing in the labor market, and potentially, as we've been talking about, meaningfully tighter Fed policy. But I am over the longer run confident that the Fed will will bring inflation back to, to 2%, even if traveling that last mile of disinflation could prove a bit bumpy. If I could throw in one last question about QT, I mean, one of the surprises for me, and I think even for Fed officials themselves, is just how much they've been able to keep this thing in the background without major disruptions. Like You could argue that the higher long-term rates are part of the ripples from QT, but certainly they've been able to keep up a pretty steady and, and fast pace of quantitative tightening without anything, quote unquote, breaking. The point that you made earlier, many, many officials have floated the idea of being able to cut rates and then continue on with QT. Do you think that might be too difficult to message? And how much further do you, do you think QT has to run? There are, broadly speaking, um, three reasons QT could come to an end. Uh, one is that we get a recession or a material slowdown in growth that leads the Fed to cut interest rates with the goal of actively easing the stance of policy. And I think that's a scenario where QT comes to an end. You know, that's largely informed by the, the challenges, the communications challenges they had during the last round of, of runoff, um, you know, where at least initially they had split, you know, what they call balance sheet normalization principles that explicitly allowed for the possibility that they could keep cutting, um, keep, keep going with QT if they were cutting interest rates. And I think that alongside some comments about the balance sheet being on autopilot sort of intensified this, this risk off move in, in markets in late 2018. So I think in the scenario where, you know, material slowdown, the Fed is cutting interest rates with the goal of actively easing policy. I think those communications challenges mean that QT likely comes to an end, but you know, if they get a soft landing scenario and they're cutting, you know, rates not so much to actively ease, but really to to bring the nominal Fed funds rate down as inflation falls in order to keep the real fund funds rate from rising, I, I do think that's a scenario where QT continues. The committee, in my view, is has signaled that they're largely thinking about those two scenarios in, in the same way that I just described. I'm not sure markets are getting the, the important conditionality that I'm hearing in their communications around that environment for rate cuts. So, but if you listen carefully, I think it's there. I mean, you know, Chair Powell was asked in July, can QT continue alongside rate cuts? And to, to paraphrase, he said, yes. 
they could if if things are okay. And then he sort of went on to describe what I think is a sort of soft landing scenario where they can talk about QT and rate cuts as both being a normalization in their in their two policy tools. In in the minutes, it talked about would QT end if they're cutting rates? Not necessarily. So I think there's just important. You know, I do think this conditionality is kind of there if you you know in subtle ways in in their communications, and it means that market participants need to kind of think about the environment in which rate cuts are coming to sort of assess the the outlook for for QT. Let me just very briefly touch on a third reason. I said there are third th- three reasons QT can can come to an end, and I'll come to my my own outlook. Um, I mean, the third reason is is that we 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 get some sort of you know, dysfunction in um, in markets that the Fed judges to be um, related to you know challenges the market is having absorbing and and intermediating um, you know the supply of of bonds. Um, but I think the bar for that is exceedingly high. It's probably higher than 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 most um, think. And 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 you know uh, you know it's a scenario where. Um, you know, you should maybe have something like March 2020 come in line, to mind. It's a it's a it's a breakdown in in risk transfer and price discovery that that really means the market isn't functioning. It's not just you know an increase in volatility and, and deterioration in in liquidity. Um, so as I said, I think the bar for that is is exceedingly high. In terms of my own outlook, as I said, our our you know my baseline forecast is we get a mild recession. The Fed is cutting you know in, in the second half of next year. In that event. In line with everything I just said, I do think they they bring QT to an end. I put you know decent odds though on on a soft landing scenario, which means QT keeps going. And in that scenario, the thing that governs how long QT can go is the level of reserves that the Fed needs to keep in the banking system in order to operate their their floor system, their so-called ample reserves regime. That depends entirely on um, bank demand for reserves, which is not something we can observe. It's something that you know shifts around over time. I do think there are good reasons to think that that demand for reserves is is considerably higher than it was um, when the Fed um, you know last ran down the the balance sheet. I mean the the economy, the banking system is bigger than it was. Um, you know there there's some recent developments like the March banking stress, prospective regulatory changes that I think are likely to to have an impact on demand for reserves. We've seen from you know, readings from the the Fed senior financial officer survey that that banks are themselves reporting that the lowest comfortable level of reserves for them has risen. So it's difficult to say how far it goes in that scenario. I do think I do think it can extend into into 2025, though. Thank you so much. That was Matthew Raskin. He is head of rate strategy at Deutsche Bank and former New York Fed economist. Thank you for coming on FedSpeak. Thanks so much for having me, Pedro. Appreciate it.